Heavenly Father, we just had a chance to, in our last song, ask you to speak to us. And you are faithful to do that. Sunday after Sunday, we gather to hear you speak, O Lord. We want to hear you, not hear about you, not hear information about you, but we want to hear you. And we want your word to do what it has the power to do, and that is to go inside and captivate a heart and a mind and transform a soul. And this is our request this morning that we might be able to worship you in spirit and truth as your word comes to us and we receive it. We want to be good soldiers. We want to come under the mission of Christ. We want to submit to the gospel of grace and we want to have hope in Christ. We cannot do this on our own strength, so we ask for your power this very morning. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do the mighty work that only you can do, and that is transforming sinners into saints and sanctifying us even this day into the image of Christ. And so be gracious with us, I pray. Be gracious with all the true churches here in the South Bay, all of our brothers and sisters who have gathered in like-minded churches and all the pastors who will be proclaiming the gospel this morning. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do a mighty work, that you would bring revival to this very dark place, that your word would be boldly proclaimed and many would hear and many would repent and many would believe this day, Lord. So give us hope in the work of Christ, I pray. In his name, amen. Amen. Okay. If you have your Bibles, if it's not open to 2 Timothy, please do so. 2 Timothy chapter 2, as we make our way and continue to make our way through this most magnificent letter. I don't know that the title, A Good Soldier, will appeal to many of you. Uh, some it might not. Um, I, I pray that you don't take any offense to the idea of you being a soldier in the army of God. The Word says that you are. And so if you struggle with that thought, maybe we can get a better handle on it today. Uh, it is an army filled with love and grace and humility. And so when we think of the context of the soldier, I want you to think of it in the context of the kingdom of God. And of course, we'll see what that means for us if we're going to be good soldiers. Um, if you've been with us, you've heard Paul say some pretty bold things to Timothy. He said, Timothy, you, you've been filled with a sincere faith. You've been called according to the purpose and grace of God when? Before the ages began. He said, you have a firm grasp of the scriptures You've been entrusted with the gospel. You've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And that was all in chapter 1. And then we get to chapter 2, and he says, You then, my child. And there's that firm but loving identity, Paul to Timothy. He says, Be strengthened, be instructed, and be edified. You then, my child, be strengthened, be instructed, and be edified. If the theme of chapter 1 was be not ashamed, and the theme of chapter 2 will be share in suffering. Be not ashamed, Timothy, and now I want you to share in the suffering of the gospel. Remember where Paul is. He's in a Roman prison awaiting his own execution in a matter of weeks. And if there's one person other than Jesus Christ himself who's going to give us a teaching on suffering, we'd want to hear the apostle Paul. 
Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 11, five times at the hands of the Jews, he received 40 lashes minus one. Paul, three times beaten with rods. Paul, stoned, three times shipwrecked, in danger from rivers, robbers, his own people, Gentiles, in the city, in the wilderness, at sea, from false brothers, in hunger and thirst, in cold and exposure. The apostle Paul knew what it meant to suffer for the gospel. And so what he's about to say to Timothy, these lessons we want to hear. Why? Because if you are in Christ, then you're in the battle. And that means you too will suffer. But we want to suffer well. If we suffer for Christ, we want to have a testimony that reveals to the world how good and glorious our God is. So it's not okay just to suffer poorly. We want to suffer well as a good soldier suffers. And that means, by grace, your ears will be fine-tuned. You know, I, I want you to listen like that student pilot who's about to take his first solo flight. Never does a pilot have greater attention to his instructor than when he gets in that airplane for the first time to fly it himself. I want you to be like that this morning. I want you to think, okay, I got a solo flight this afternoon. I want to hear God. Amen? All right, so let's do that. In order to suffer well, Paul says you got to have, you got to possess three things. Number one, strength. The power of God, two, instruction, how to live the life, and number three, an understanding. Not cognitive, but in the heart, a deep understanding of this. So let's look at strength first. I don't know about you, I need strength. And I really need it when I'm suffering. When I realize there's nothing I can do to get through this on my own, I need the strength of God. So let's start with that. Again, verse 1, 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, this doesn't appear well in the English, but it's in the passive voice in the Greek, and it better is stated, be made strong by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And so what Paul, Paul's not saying to Timothy, be a man. I mean, I want you to really get strong here. Find that inner strength of your, of your manhood. He's saying, you can't, Timothy. You don't have the strength to suffer for the gospel of grace. You must receive it from God. You must receive it in Christ, by grace. And this is, this is not salvific grace, and this is not common grace. This is the grace of power. And the word for power there, you probably have heard me say this. I love it so much. In the Greek, it's dunamis. We call it dynamite. It's dynamite power in Christ to go through suffering in a way that brings God honor and glory. This is not a, a hyper-suggestive technique Paul's not saying to Timothy, I want you to try really hard to harness some power of your own. This is not a metaphorical statement to be in Christ. We hear that so much and it becomes a Christian cliche. This is, listen, this is the very real standing in who you are if you are in Christ. That means indwelt by the Holy Spirit and in sweet communion with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit now and forever. And that means you have power. You're in communion with God in a right, loving relationship with God. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. You have power. And if someone told you or yourself told you, I can't make it through this, I am powerless, that is a lie. In Christ, you have the power of God Almighty. Most of you, I think, would agree that suffering is just real. It's just a part of our life. Saved and unsaved, you don't have to be a Christian to suffer. We live in a fallen world. 
The thing about Christianity, though, is you will suffer as a creature in a fallen world, and you will suffer as a follower of Jesus Christ. So you get double suffering. Before his death and resurrection, Jesus said this to his disciples, John 15, 19. He said, you do not belong to the world because I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. He says, you belong to me. You must follow me. And if the world hated me, they're going to hate you. They will treat you as they treated me. And how do they treat Christ? They crucified him. It means, my beloved, that when we count the cost of following Christ, part and parcel with the walk is suffering. It is suffering. And we want to be, I know most of you want to be, a living testimony that suffers well for Christ. You don't want to stumble in this. And therefore, we have to have this power. You need it. I need it. I would say the church certainly needs it today. In fact, we need it so much, Paul says, you've got you to talk about this gospel and the power, and you've got to pass it on. He says you've got you to communicate it to the next generation. Look at verse 2. Paul says to Timothy, and what you've heard from me, which is the gospel, the power of the gospel, in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. He says, Timothy, you've been made strong. We heard that word in chapter 1. You've been entrusted with a good deposit, the gospel itself. You have it. Now, go find men who are faithful, those who are walking with the Lord, and who can teach and communicate this gospel power to them. Why would this be so important? The apostle Paul is not so discreetly establishing what we call apostolic succession. The word of God coming from Jesus Christ to the apostles, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written down in the Bible, and passed on from generation to generation to generation. That's why we're here. That's why you have Bibles in your hands. That's why we preach from the Bible, that we might hear this true message. You say, well, why would that be the case? This is the only message where there's any hope. Any message apart from Jesus Christ, there is no hope. And there is no power, certainly not to live a holy life or to bring honor to God in the midst of suffering. This is, I believe, chapter 2, I mean, chapter uh, 2, verse 2, is a, an indictment against the Western world today, and certainly the Western church. So many churches, I imagine, even this morning in the Bay Area, have forsaken the simple command by the Apostle Paul to preach the old message. Paul would say to many pastors, open the book and preach God's word. Enough of the noise, enough of the new things and the nonsense. Paul did not expect preachers in the 21st century to wake up every Monday and say, what new thing can I talk about to my church? What new message, what neat idea will bring people in and save them by grace? He says, preach the old story. It's the story of grace and the story of salvation, and it is our only hope. We're to preach God's word. Why? So the man of God, we'll see this in a few weeks. 2 Timothy 3, the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Equipped. When we preach the gospel of grace, and when you hear the word of God, and when, we'll, when you take it in, it enables you to live a holy life. It enables you to share the gospel with the lost and make disciples in the faith. It enables you to suffer well as a good soldier. So first, I pray that you see 
As a Christian, you will suffer. And if you're going to suffer as a good soldier, you need power, and you don't have it in yourself. That power comes through the Holy Spirit and God's Word. Through the living, 1 Peter 1, 23, through the living and abiding Word of God. So how do you know if you have it? I mean, what, what does this good soldier look like? You said he's got to have power from Christ, and that is true. But what does he look like? What is this life? of a good soldier look like? Maybe a more appropriate question is, Pastor, how can I suffer well for Christ? Because when I suffer, I don't think I do such a good job. I complain a lot. Everybody knows that I'm suffering. I don't, I don't testify well to the strength of God because I seem so weak because I'm trying to rely upon my own strength. Let's look at the second point. We need power and we need instruction. And this is not just instruction from an economics class you take at a local community college. This is instruction that comes from God's Word. We need power, and we need understanding. This picture of a soldier, Paul decides to give us a word picture, and it's good. These are very helpful for me. And he's going to talk here about a soldier, and then he's going to talk about a farmer and an athlete, but he's still talking about the soldier the entire time. Look at verse 3. He says to Timothy, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Now, if you were here a few weeks back, he already said in chapter 1, verse 8, he said to Timothy, share in suffering for the gospel. But in that particular case, he's saying, I don't want you to be ashamed of the gospel, and I don't want you to be ashamed of me, a prisoner of the gospel. Here he's saying, I want you to suffer as a good soldier suffers. Why does he, why does he tell Timothy that? Same reason he's telling us that, that if you're in Christ, you're in a battle, and you know that. You're in a battle each day. If you're in Christ, you have been called and enlisted by God to join this glorious army of saints filled with love and grace and humility, fighting for your soul, fighting for the souls of whom you love, fighting for the glory of God. And if you're in this battle... Don't you want to fight well? I mean, if you're in a fight, don't you want to fight well? I've never heard somebody say, I, I'm going to get in this fight, and I'm, I'm just going to get pummeled. No one says that. We want to fight well. And so how do we, as good soldiers, fight well in this battle? There are three things that Paul identifies here, and I, and I really want us to get them today. Being submissive, the good soldier. Being obedient, the good soldier. And being hopeful, the good soldier. Let's look at the submission part first. The good soldier comes under the mission of the commanding officer. A good soldier listens to his general and the instructions that are given. Look at verse 4. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So if you are in Christ, you've been called into the army of God. And you have a commander-in-chief, and he has a mission. And that mission is not necessarily the mission for your life, at least not your old life. Paul is saying to Timothy, don't get entangled in civilian pursuits. That literally can be translated into the affairs of life. The affairs of life. Now, we've got to be really careful with this teaching, don't we? This is not a call to asceticism. 
This is not a call to disengage or disavow the culture and say, I'm not going to think or worry about food or work, and I, I'm going to make sure I don't watch any good movies or play any baseball games. I'm going to stay away from anything that's pleasurable. That's not what this is teaching. In fact, we know that because the clarification is in the verse itself. Paul tells Timothy what his purpose is, and that is what? Look, to please the one who enlisted him. That's his marching order. Please God. And according to God, he's saying, I don't want you to get entangled with all the stuff in this life. The good soldier desires to please God first, to be faithful on mission. And we've talked about that before, that we're all on mission. We're all to pursue holiness. We're all to rejoice in the grace that God has given us in the relationship we have with Christ. We are all to engage in the sharing of the gospel. We're all to engage in the making of disciples. This is the great mission of God that we're to participate in as good soldiers rather than being entangled with the civilian affairs that the flesh wants to do. So that's where the battle comes in. Your flesh wants to live and breathe this world. We want to make idols out of our work and our marriages and our children. We want to make idols out of our food and our movies and our music. That's getting entangled. The Spirit wants to submit to God in all things. The Spirit wants us to have temperance in all things. And that means, listen, when your boss wants you to work much longer hours, and in so doing, it will be at the expense of your marriage and your children and your ministry, you are to come under the mission of Christ. When your family wants you to forsake gatherings of the saints or to forsake ministry that God's called you to do, to hang out with them. When your friends want you to continue in the clubs and the nightlife that you did before Christ, but you know if you do, you'll ruin your testimony. When your flesh wants that degree so you can get that job so you can buy that house and drive that car, and everyone around you can say, look at that person. There's a success. In all these areas, we must fight not to be entangled by the temptations of the world. The good soldier marches on, engaged but not entangled, So God is not saying here, don't go to work. God wants you to work, and he wants you to enjoy your work. In fact, your father, to please him, he rejoices when you enjoy that very well-prepared steak and potato dinner. He does. Your father rejoices when you express a right love for your spouse, when you rejoice in your children. Your father takes great pleasure in seeing you enjoy a good baseball game if baseball is your thing. He does. He rejoices when you rejoice in that great movie that stirred your heart or that night on the town with your friends that was not sinful. Our Father says, enjoy these great blessings, but do not let them become inordinate. Do not get entangled. Do not make them idols in your life. The good soldier will not. This good soldier will stay on mission. The good soldier will submit to Colossians 3.2. He will set his mind on the things that are above and not on the things that are on earth. If you are a soldier in the army of Christ, you have a general. 
you have a mission. You are in the battle for souls, for your soul, for the souls of those around you in your mission field. So when your civilian affairs, when your civilian pursuits supersede the mission of God, he's no longer commander-in-chief. You are. You are saying, enough, I will now be seated as general in my life, and I will live according to my mission. I think that many Western Christians have adopted this lifestyle. Christ has become, in many ways for us, an add-on or an attachment where we pay tribute to Him on a Sunday morning because it's Sunday and maybe a little bit on Wednesday night. And we open our Bibles periodically for a morning devotion. We give Him a nod and a nod in prayer. And maybe we even do a Bible study because we have to create that perception that we are really Christian so people know. My beloved, if the majority of your days and your thoughts and your decisions are on your own, not bathed in prayer, not in accordance with the Word, then you are on your own mission, not the mission of God. Jesus Christ said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, listen, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. A good soldier has one master and knows it and submits to the master's mission. So, if you want to suffer well for the gospel of grace, you must come under the mission of Christ. And His mission must define your life. But there's a second thing that Paul wants us to see here. The good soldier will also be obedient. Submissive and obedient. Look at verse 5. Paul says to Timothy, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And so, Paul's engaging in a little mixed analogies here. Makes it a little difficult, but you need to understand, he talks about an athlete and he talks about a farmer in the context of the soldier. He's still describing the characteristics of a good soldier. And an example he uses here is an athlete. An athlete who what? An athlete who wins by obeying the rules. An athlete who's victorious by following the rules. And so the correlation is this, the good soldier in Christ will be victorious by following the laws of God, by submitting to the rules of God, not by circumventing them or bending them or changing them. Now, we often read 1 Corinthians 9 about Paul calling us to run the race to win, and we read that in the context here. That's not really what it's teaching. This athlete has already won or will win, and he will do so by obeying the rules of the game. For those of you who watched the Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang, then you probably remember how many Russians who were not there under the Russian flag. 47 athletes and coaches were banned by the International Olympic Committee for doping, taking drugs to give them the ability to shortcut the training process, to accelerate a training process, to become stronger and faster. It was a violation of the rules. It's a shortcut, and it's a bad shortcut because two things. One, it destroys the body, and two, it renders the competition unfair. It's not a level playing field. And so they cast them out. 
Back in chapter 1 and verse 13, Paul said, follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me. Follow the rules of the gospel. Follow the law of grace. In other words, there's a, there's a right way to live as Christians, and there's a wrong way to live as Christians. And if we want to be good soldiers, we cannot circumvent God's word and say, I, I know that's what it says, but I'm going to do this instead. I'm going to take this shortcut. It's got to be faster if I go this route. I remember when I was teaching U.S. history, talking about the great migrations westward. And you know this story. Here's a, here's a soldier's principle of obedience that had several in this event submitted to, they would have lived, but they did not. In 1846, James Reed, who was a businessman, wanted to make it rich in California right before the gold rush. He brought his family to Springfield, Illinois, and he joined himself with George Donner's wagon train, and they headed west. Some accounts say that 90 people, from the infants to the elderly, left Springfield, Illinois in 1846, and by the time they made it to St. Louis, that caravan was over two miles long. Large gathering. The trip went well until they got to Fort Bridger, Wyoming. And there the Donner Party decided they would split off from the main group and take a shortcut or an alleged shortcut. They had read in a guidebook written by Lansford Hastings that if they went this route, they would cut 300 miles off their trip. Now, Mr. Reed had a good friend who was already in California who had taken the route, and he received this word from him. The friend said, don't do it. You can't take the wagons that way. Go, listen, go the old route. Be safe. You'll perish. Mr. Reed, growing impatient, did not heed the counsel and said to his family and friends, there's a newer route, and we might as well take it. And so they did. Now, the pioneers were on a very time, short timeline. They had to get to the Sierra Nevadas before winter to get over the summits. The shortcut was a long cut. They ended at the base of the Sierras late in the season, and they decided to cross it anyway. And only a few days into their crossing, you know the story, they became trapped with heavy and early snowfall. By the time the rescuers got to them. Many had resorted to cannibalism to stay alive. And of the 80 who took the shortcut, only 45 survived. Verse 5, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. My beloved, there are no shortcuts in the kingdom of God. There are no shortcuts in Christ. If you want to grow in your love for God, if you want to grow in holiness, then you must feed on God's word daily. It was Jesus who said, man does not live on bread alone, but what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There are no shortcuts. If you want to be an effective servant for Christ, you must be a faithful, praying servant of Christ. 1 John 5, 14, this is the confidence that we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. There are no shortcuts. You say, I want to grow in holiness. I want to be a good soldier, but I'm not going to read my Bible, and I'm not going to spend time in prayer. That's my shortcut. You will perish. You want to be a good soldier? 
according to the word of God, according to the rules of God, then you got to be in a platoon. you got to be part of the army. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and following, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Do not neglect to meet together as, the ha- as is the habit of some, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. There is no such thing as Christian isolationism. I know we see it today. I know it's in the culture. I know it's made its way into the church. You were made and saved into community for one anothering, for right fighting with brothers and sisters for the great cause. Covenant community is biblical. If you try to take that shortcut, you'll perish. So the good soldier is submissive. The good soldier is obedient. I'll give you one more before my last point. He's hopeful. This is an amazing verse, and I don't think we see it well. Look at verse 6. The good soldier is submissive, obedient, and hopeful. Verse 6, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. So he's still talking about the soldier. He gave you an example with the athlete. Still talking about the soldier. Now he's going to give you an example of a hard-working farmer. And the hard-working farmer would receive the first fruit of their crops before it would go to market. He would take from the crops for his family, for his own needs, for his friends, and then he would sell the remainder. And we usually look at this and we think, well, he must be saying that the good soldier will work hard. But that's not what verse 6 is saying. Of course the good soldier is to work hard. What Paul is saying here, and this is so great, he's saying the good soldier, for his hard work, will receive the bounty of his labor. The good soldier, by working hard, will receive the first fruit promised to him. And so the soldier in Christ will be hopeful Hopeful of what? That he's going to come before Jesus and Jesus is going to place that crown upon his head. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, listen, if you're going to be a good soldier, you've got to be submissive, you've got to be obedient, you've got to be hopeful by keeping your eyes on Christ. Keep your eyes up. The mission is difficult. Don't look down, look at Christ. The guaranteed success of the toiling and the labor and the suffering because Jesus Christ has already been victorious for you. The guaranteed crown of glory because Jesus Christ is already crowned in glory. This mission cannot miss that you're on. Is it long? Yes. Is it hard at times? Yes. Much suffering? Yes. But the end is victory. And so Paul is saying to Timothy in great love, listen, you got to stay the course because it brings God glory. You've got to stay the course because tens of thousands will be impacted by it. And you've got to stay the course, Timothy, because it's so good for you. Because in the end, you will have all the joy and all the peace and all the satisfaction of Christ himself. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 1.13, here's the soldier's cry. Prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. And then, I love this, one of the first verses I memorized, fix your hope on what? Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying, soldier, look out. Christ, see him. Fix it on him. It's Christ who is the prize. And that's the grace that will come when he comes again in glory. All right, so do you know how now? You say, I I have to have power from God. How am I a good soldier? I will be submissive, coming under the mission of Christ. 
I will be obedient, living in accordance with the laws of God. And I will be hopeful because my Savior is already victorious. You say, all right, well, that's, that's sufficient. We need no more. You can stop. But I can't because verse 7 is fantastic. And I could have stopped at verse 6, but 7 is a considering verse. And so I want us to consider considering. Last point, number three, understanding. Paul says to Timothy in verse 7, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Think over what I say. Now, you should find that verse a bit odd because if you've been listening to verses 1 through 6, you probably thought it hasn't been that difficult to grasp. And I would agree. He's saying, Timothy, you need power from God. You can't do it on your own. I get that. He's saying, Timothy, you want to be a good soldier? You've got to submit to the mission of God. I get that. He's saying, Timothy, if you want to be a good soldier, you have to follow the rules of God. You have to be hopeful in Christ. These all make sense to us. So why, why does Paul tell Timothy to think over what he said? Because Paul knows, as you know, that there's knowing and then there's knowing. Right? There's a difference between knowing, oh, I know what Paul said, and really knowing in our hearts what he said and what it means. Now, I know that the church struggles today. There are enough surveys out there talking about the biblical ignorance of the body of Christ in the Western world. We know that. But I find it equally compelling that it's not just our lack of knowledge, especially in Reformed circles. Many in the Reformed circles, they have knowledge of the Word of God, but they do not have understanding of the Word of God. They can hear it, they can teach it, they might even be able to preach it, but it hasn't made its way in. And unless it makes its way in, there's no transforming power. I would imagine if I have done a decent job preaching and teaching this passage thus far, and I were to give you a pop quiz, and I asked you some basic questions and you were paying attention, I imagine most of you would get high marks. But sitting in a climate-controlled room in San Jose, California, with no immediate threat at that door when you leave this place, and hearing these words and passing a quiz does not a good soldier make. There is no power in simply knowing the words of God. In order for the power of the gospel and the teaching of God's word to have its right impact, Paul says you must understand it. And that word in the Greek It's the same root for synthesize, to synthesize something, to have it go in holistically, to apprehend it totally so that it becomes part of you. Verse 7 again, the Lord will give you understanding in everything. This is his desire, but look at what it requires. Let's not pass this by. Beginning of verse 7 again, we must think it over. Think over, Paul says to Timothy, what I say. When you come to a saving grace in Christ, he doesn't open up your head and just pour in information and then seal your head back up. You're not a robot. You are a beautiful creation made in his image. And so he gives us his word to think about and to ponder and to meditate and to have the reasoning come in. And he expects us to apply the mental effort necessary for it to go in deep. And that means we want to take the objective truths that you've heard proclaimed this morning and there have been several from the Word, and you want to make them subjective to you. The objective truths are to be proclaimed. The Word is to go out. We sing it, we pray it, we preach it, 
and then you must take that in, take the truth in subjectively. It becomes your truth too. Not just something outside, but now something in you. That's why a cursory read or listen, a cursory listening to a sermon like this will do you no good unless it goes inside. Some of you are fastidious in taking notes. I love that. Do you go back to the notes? Do you pray over the notes? Do you contemplate the notes? Some of you say, no, I I can't take notes and listen at the same time. Then do you listen well? Do you take the passage that night, this week, and go back and go, okay, what, what what did the Lord say through him? What words came out here that I can meditate on and chew on so that it becomes part of who I am and not just a proclaimed objective truth that hangs in midair. I read last week that the average American household is bombarded with 34 gigabytes of information per person per day. Now, I'm not a computer guy, and that blew me away. That's the equivalent of 641,000 Word documents, 21,000 photos, and 8,000 songs 34 gigabytes of information per person per day for the average American household. Information is not our problem. Knowing the information personally is. We consider ourselves blessed because we live in an age of technology and information where you can right now, if I pose a general question to you, most of you could take out your little computers that we call phones and look up the answer, and 90% would have it in a matter of 30 seconds or less. It's an amazing thing. And, and we're very blessed in many ways, but I would argue as well that the gluttony of information and the lack of patience we have in taking information and doing something right with it makes contemporary Christians unable to think over what is said. And when that's the Word of God, then we fail if we're not thinking over what God has said. The Puritans saw meditation as indispensable to the Christian walk. So much so, listen to this extreme statement. They said, quote, one cannot be a Christian without meditating on God's word. Whew. I don't know that I agree with that. It's extreme, but I understand why they said it. The Christian, the Puritans understood that we meditate on God's word not just to get an understanding of God and our lives, not just to receive instruction, but to commune with God. The Puritans understood that when you go to the Word and you read it or you hear a sermon and it goes in deep, you're communing with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And they said that's where the power is. It's in the relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ. And it's this is the power that you need to be the good soldier. This is the power that you need to understand, to synthesize the Word of God. This is the power that you need to be submissive and obedient and hopeful in the midst of the trials. The saints of old, they called this thinking and understanding from verse 7, Lectio Divina. You've probably heard that before. It's divine reading. It's hearing and reading the Word of God and having it enter our souls like food enters our stomachs. It's hearing and reading the Word of God and having it going inside and infuse your bloodstream with His love and His grace and His joy. It's you, through the Word, being transformed from the inside out so that all your struggles 
your lack of patience, your anger, your frustration, your dissatisfaction, your jealousy, all those, the power of God from the inside out can battle well. In the 20th century, theologian Karl Barth, he said something that, again, I found surprising. He says, you don't read your Bible, listen, to get God into your life. You don't read your Bible to get God into your life. You read your Bibles and you listen to sermons to listen to this, to be caught off guard, to be surprised, to be drawn in to the fellowship of God on His terms, not yours. What a different way to read the Bible. Not saying, okay, this is what I think about God, let me find it. But let me go to the Word of God and hear what God has to say to me on His terms. I want to be surprised. I want to be challenged by the Word. I want the Word to shape me and convict me and encourage me. But in order for that to happen, it must go inside. And you know what I'm talking about. We've all had those devotional times where we've gone through it. You've spent 30 minutes, and you close the Bible, and if someone said to you, what did you read? you say, I don't know. It was in the New Testament. I think it was an epistle. No, it was the gospel. I don't know. That's not Lectio Divina. That's not the Word going in, and there's no power there. There were three men in Scripture, three men in the, in the Bible that were commanded by God to eat a book, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and John. And all three men, this is fascinating, Ezekiel and Jeremiah going through very difficult times, suffering in the persecution of the Babylonian onslaught and exile. And then, of course, the Apostle John who was suffering under the reign of the Roman Emperor Domitian. Listen to this from Revelation. Revelation chapter 10, verse 8, then the voice, John speaking, then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again. It was an angel. The angel said to John, go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who was standing on the sea and on the land. John says, so I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter. But in your mouth, it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth, it will be sweet as honey. That's a whole other sermon. Verse 10, he said, and I, and I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel, and I ate it. You know what John was doing before he took the book and he ate it? He was taking notes. He was writing it down. He was. And the angel said, stop writing. Here's the book. Swallow the book. Why? Why would the angel have John do such a strange thing? Because the angel knew what God knows and that in order for us to change, it has to go inside. In order for John to be the man that he was supposed to be, in order for John to proclaim the message of hope that he was to proclaim, that gospel message had to go in deep and transform him utterly. It must go in you and transform you as well if you want to be a good soldier for Christ. Eugene Peterson put it like this, God does not put us in charge of forming our personal spiritualities. We grow, listen to this, we grow in accordance with the revealed word implanted in us by the Spirit. We become what we read, and if the Holy Scripture is to be something other than mere gossip about God, it must be internalized. Boy, that was convicting. 
if the word of God is going to be more than just you gossiping about God because you know about him, and it's going to be knowing God, then you must eat this book. Jesus Christ, the living word, ascended the cross as our substitute, not so that we could gather information and gossip about God. Jesus Christ bore our sins in his flesh so that his word could come into our flesh and make us new. He died to bring sinners into communion with God through the living word. When you bring the word in, it will fill you with power. It will fill you with knowledge. It'll fill you with wisdom. It'll fill you with love. A love of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. But you gotta eat. And you gotta eat. So when, when I close this in the next minute, this word proclaimed will be finished. The proclamation of it. But it's not finished by any means. It must now be taken by you and eaten and chewed upon. Questions asked, contemplated, prayer engaged in. Going back to the word, I, I don't understand it. Please help me, Lord. Let it go deep. Let it go deep. And here's why. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 22, you will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. The one who endures to the end through the suffering will be saved. Do you know the power of God to endure suffering like a good soldier? Do you have the knowledge of God deep in your heart and is that growing that you might be a good soldier so that you can make it to the end? Do you know what it means to eat the book? Do you know what it means to feast on the word of God daily? that you might hear God speak to you of his joy and his love, that he might fill your heart and mind and soul with all these glorious truths of communion and friendship with him that you were created to have from the beginning. There is great apathy in the Western church today. There is. I don't think many people would argue with that. Not much power in love being expressed by those who proclaim to be born again and indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God. I would say that there's much entanglement with civilian affairs. Too little being on mission for Christ, our Savior and our King. Might it be, my beloved, might it be that we're just malnourished? Might it be? I mean, we listen to sermons um, in the car, we read our Bibles, but might it be that we're not eating well, that we're not taking it in and listening and hearing and being changed by it? I grow weary of reformed gossips about God. Gossiping about God is just talking about God without a personal relationship with God. The words have to go in deep. And if they do, you will be changed. So I will say in verse 7, and I'll pray, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Think over what God has said. He will give you understanding in everything. Let's pray. Father, let this teaching 
be exercised right now. We need not wait for it. By your grace and mercy, you have used a sinner like me to faithfully proclaim your word. We have now received it in faith. And now by your Holy Spirit, cause us to chew. Cause us to swallow. Cause us to have the word go deep and to permeate every fiber of our being that we might know the love and the grace and the humility and the joy in Christ. That we might even this very moment, Lord, be changed by your word going in and doing the work that only it can do by your Holy Spirit. Father, forgive us for these many years of hearing but not understanding, of chewing but not swallowing. Forgive us, Father. Let that no longer be the case here at Cambrian Park Baptist Church. Let that no longer be the case here in the South Bay. Let every faithful word proclaimed this morning be chewed and swallowed by every single believer who heard it. And then use your word, Father, in your spirit to raise up soldiers, good soldiers, mighty soldiers for Christ, men and women who are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, men and women who have committed their lives to the mission of Jesus Christ, men and women who said, I'm not going to take the shortcuts. I'm going to hear the word. I'm going to follow the word. Men and women who truly do fix their hope completely on the grace to be brought when Christ comes again. Father, do that work here. Do that work in the South Bay. Do that great work in all your true churches this very morning throughout the world for your glory. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.